All right. Go ahead and open up to John chapter 10. So um, for those of you who are new or visiting with us, um, we have been working through the Gospel of John since January of last year. Um, we took a, a little bit of a break a few times last year, but um, we're continuing on. And um, it's kind of one of those things where it's just evidence of God's grace that we're, we're being faithful to the Word because, you know, we didn't land on a passage where it was kind of odd. It was a passage that actually fit perfectly with Easter Sunday. And so I'm very grateful for that. But last week we began to to take a look at the Good Shepherd. Um, in the beginning of John chapter 10, it's the Good Shepherd passage. We began to look at the Good Shepherd, and, and the first portion, verses um, 1 through 10, really uh, point us to the, the fact that, that God, Jesus, is a caring shepherd, that he draws in his sheep and that he defends his sheep. And, and we were taken to um, what Middle Eastern shepherding looked like. It looks a lot different than shepherding does in, in our mind. In our mind, probably what we picture is a shepherd um, with a sheep herding dog, and you're driving sheep. They're, they're wrangling the sheep, and you're driving the sheep. But in those days, what you would have is actually a much different picture. And in that culture, you have a much different picture. Um, usually attached to the house, um, there would be what's known as a sheepfold, and it's a large round stone structure with one gate. And there was a gatekeeper, and that gatekeeper would only open the door to that gate. He would only open that gate to a shepherd that he knew. And the, in the evening time, they would actually herd in several uh, flocks of sheep into that sheepfold. So it's a large structure. In the morning, the gatekeeper would again open the door for the shepherds. The shepherds would take places out in the field in separate places, and they would begin to call their sheep by name. Now, if you know, sheep are not the most intelligent animals, but they would hear their shepherd's voice, and they would go to their shepherd. So in our day, imagine you're a teacher and just, I don't know, say you're teaching kindergartners, since my oldest is in kindergarten, and you had a couple teachers out there, and they just said, all right, kids, let's go. What happens? It's probably chaos, right? Well, sheep, they hear the voice of their shepherd, and they begin to flock to their specific shepherd because they love their shepherd, because they know they're loved by their shepherd. Their shepherds know them. They are with them, and the sheep trust the shepherd. And this morning, we're going to continue in the Good Shepherd passage, but we're going to look at the beautiful shepherd. You should see that on your bulletin, that the title of the sermon is The Beautiful Shepherd. And we're going to get into a little bit of why it's called The Beautiful Shepherd in a little bit. But the main idea, the thrust of where we're going to be this morning is this, that Jesus, the beautiful shepherd, has authority over life and death. So hopefully you found John 10. If you haven't, the words should be on the screen. And I'm going to invite you, if you can, to stand with us. And I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. And we're going to dive into our text together. Starting in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we celebrate again Resurrection Sunday, and we begin to dive in further to this text of the Good Shepherd, God, I pray that you will help us to be receptive to your word to be encouraged by your word, to be challenged by your word, to be shaped by your word. God, everyone here comes with a different life story, different backgrounds, different things going on. But the good shepherd is a good shepherd to all sorts of sheep. And you are king to all types of people. And so I pray, God, as we hear your word read and spoken this morning, God, that you will bring us closer to you. For some of us, it will be prayerfully a time of encouragement to know that the trials and the, the struggles we're facing every day of our lives are not going to be our fate, but they're just simply a destination on our way to the heavenly kingdom. A burden that'll be laid off of our back at the cross. For some, it will be challenging. Maybe Father, there are those here that have never trusted in the saving work of Jesus. I pray, God, that your word will speak life into their hearts and their souls today. Some, it will be refreshing. God, whatever our story, whatever our situation... We ask and we hope and we trust that you will speak to us through the power of your spirit. That you illuminate the truths of your word and your good news. To touch every life, every heart, every situation present here today. There is no other hope outside of Christ. And for that, Father, we rejoice. We rejoice that Jesus would come. We rejoice that Jesus would give his life as a ransom for many. And we rejoice, as we will see in this passage, 
but he takes it up again. Death no longer has dominion. Death no longer reigns. Jesus does. So Father, we ask you to meet us here and speak to us where we are and that we would bring glory and honor to the name that is truly above every other name. And today is the day that sets that into motion. The day that Jesus rose from death to victory, to life. Not just a good man, but king of all. King forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last week, we actually ended with verse 10. Uh, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came, it's Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. The question telling off of that is how then does he accomplish this? How does he come and how does he give abundant life? The first point that we see in our text today is that Jesus is the beautiful shepherd. We can't start without starting there. Verse 11, the very first five words, I am the good shepherd. That's as opposed to a false shepherd. A false shepherd, when a thief comes, when a robber comes, when danger comes, when trials come, a false shepherd will run. He will hide He will flee because he does not care for his own. Not his sheep, because they're not his own. He cares for his own self. A false shepherd does not love the sheep. It's simply a job. A false shepherd does not protect the sheep because he's only worried about protecting himself. But the good news is is that Jesus will not fail. He will not run. Whereas a false shepherd does not care, and he runs and he flees, the good shepherd never runs. He never retreats, he never forsakes, he never abandons. Jesus is our good shepherd. Verse 12 and 13 remind us, it says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. One of, again, the beautiful reminders of the Middle Eastern type of shepherding that is referenced here, again, as opposed to what we know as shepherding is driving the sheep. When that shepherd calls those sheep out of the sheepfold, he then leads and the sheep follow. They trust their shepherd. They trust him to lead. They trust him to provide protect, to care. And it reminds us of what we read in Psalm 23, right? That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The thing about David writing this is David was actually fearing for his life at this point. 
He was being pursued by his son who was trying to kill him. And David takes a moment to rejoice in the Lord. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Where's his assurance? For you're with me. The Lord was always with him. He knew the Lord would never leave him. And if anybody knew what a shepherd was to do, it was David, right? David was a shepherd long before he was a king. And this beautiful picture of a shepherd resonating with God as a good shepherd. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's so easy for us to see something like a shepherd and, and emblems like a shepherd's staff and just play it off as just a thing. But, but there's such a beautiful semblance there because a shepherd's staff has multiple purposes. It has a crook at the end that is actually a glorious thing for us because as a sheep would stray, that shepherd would just simply take that crook and ease that, she- that sheep back into the fold. If a sheep is about to wander off of a cliff or he's about to step off into um, a ravine or step off into water in which he would drown, that shepherd would just simply pull him back. But then the other part of the shepherd's staff, the staff, the rod itself, was there to protect And a shepherd was not afraid to protect his sheep. A good shepherd's not. And so David knew, you are with me. And just as the sheep trust their shepherd, we should trust Jesus. Why? Because he knows you. He knows me. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You see this intimacy there. There's this picture of sheep following because they simply trust. And the shepherd calls them by name and they come. And the good news for us today is the good shepherd knows you and me as well. He knows you by name and he always has. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before your parents were born. He knew you before your grandparents were born. He knew you before he created all things. And he loves you. And he cares. The sheep trust because they know that a shepherd will guide them to food. He will lead them to water. He will make sure that they are resting. When a sheep is injured, he will pick the sheep up and carry him. A shepherd loves his sheep without measure. And the good shepherd, Jesus, goes above and beyond that of a shepherd. Because he loves us unconditionally. And the good news about the good shepherd is he loves without bounds. And he will never let his sheep go astray. Last week, we looked at a portion of Ezekiel chapter 34. And in the beginning portion of Ezekiel chapter 34, if you remember, it's all judgment being cast on these false shepherds who were hired hands. They made sure they were fed, but not their sheep. And their sheep became weak, and their sheep became ill, and their sheep were in 
a bad place. They were not being cared for. But the shepherds were very well cared for. And you have this judgment being cast on them because of them not being faithful. And what it really is, is a picture of men who had been set in place to care for the people of God, who had not cared for the people of God. And so this motif of shepherd constantly is carrying throughout Scripture. And in the end of the passage we looked at last week in Ezekiel chapter 34, we saw in verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, the false shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and they, that they may not be food for them. And then we go into verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself. And I want you to see how that carries on throughout this. I, I myself, I, I myself. It says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that they have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in, the, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy or remove, and I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Listen to this. I will rescue my flock. And they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Remember, David was a shepherd. 
And he was a shepherd that in 2 Samuel 7, God set as the inherent ruler of all Israel. That he would receive the throne and that throne would never cease. Not that David would live forever and we know that David had his issues, right? But it was a throne that pointed to King Jesus who would come through the line of David, who, who, of David, who would set up his throne and it would never fail. It would never fail because Jesus never fails. He will let none of his sheep go astray and even when we're wounded and even when we're taken advantage of, Jesus will never leave us. So the question is, is why the beautiful shepherd? I'll be honest, this is something that I actually never knew until this week. When I was at Bruton Parker, I took three semesters of Greek, and I maybe learned this, but I did not remember it. Um, but in Greek, there are actually two words for good, and one of them is kalos, and it actually means beautiful. That's the word good here. I'm the beautiful shepherd. He's beautiful because he cares without measure. He's beautiful because he loves without bounds. He's beautiful because he will literally put himself in our place. And the truth is, is the unbounded love of Jesus, the good shepherd, is remarkably beautiful. Why? Because he's the beautiful shepherd. How do we know that he's the beautiful shepherd? He's the beautiful shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep. That is, Jesus dies for his sheep. Again, back in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What separates a false shepherd from a good shepherd? Limitless care. The fact that when danger comes, when trials come, when struggles come, what does a false shepherd do? He runs, he retreats, he abandons, he forsakes, but the good shepherd does not. The good shepherd will not flee, he will not run. The good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, instead he lays down his life for his sheep. The ultimate mark of a good shepherd is to protect at all cost. There is nothing that can stop the love of God. David as a picture of a shepherd. And I don't know if you remember, but David was not all that powerful. Um, part of the reason David was um, cast out is because David was small. He was small in stature. He was not very important. He was the baby boy. And even when um, the Israelite army went to battle against the Philistines, he actually had to stay back to care for the sheep because he was too small. And when he went to deliver food to his brothers, um, Goliath had made the challenge to, to send out um, the Israelites' best soldier, and everybody was terrified of Goliath, so they just sat and waited. Nobody would do it. So what's David, the little runt shepherd boy, do? He shows up and he says, I'll do it. And so King Saul, such a mighty man, says, okay, David, you can do it. Here's my armor. But his armor was too big, so David simply grabs the stones and goes to battle with Goliath, and we all know how that story ends. But long before that, David had done something else. He had killed a lion, and he had killed a bear to protect his flock. 
Again, a lion is a massive animal. A bear is a massive animal. David was not a massive human being, and he defeated them. And this is just me, but I honestly think that that is pointing even more so to Christ than people realize. Because in Isaiah, we read that there's nothing really worth looking at with Jesus. And David protected his sheep at all costs, and the good shepherd goes even further. Because a good shepherd is willing to protect his sheep even unto death. And that's where we get into the idea of substitution. That a shepherd would put himself in harm's way so that his sheep are not. See, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, when they listened to the serpent and they ate of the forbidden fruit, sin entered into them and entered into this world. And we're all sinners. We can't escape that. There's nothing we can do on our own to flee from that. And Romans 6 says that the punishment of sin is death. But it also says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he gives himself as a ransom for many. He puts himself in our place. The godly for the ungodly. The perfect for the flawed. He substitutes himself. According to verse 14, he, verse 15, check that. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd in our place. The punishment for sin was death, and Jesus died. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I love the depth of that. Because so often there's something there that we miss. That he would give his only son. We all growing up, if we go to church events, we're hearing John 3.16. But there's another passage that points to this great truth as well. Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah is an absolutely moving book. It's long, but it's what most theologians actually refer to as the fifth gospel, even though it was written thousands of years, hundreds of years before Christ was ever born. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is pointing to Jesus. I want you to just imagine this and then think about all that you've heard before from the New Testament. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as far as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, it, I mean, if, if that doesn't point you to Jesus, I'm just not sure what does. The details there, right? I mean, Jesus was despised. He was rejected. He was afflicted. He carried our sorrows. He did not open his mouth. And even to go so far as to point to the fact that he would be born in a borrowed tomb of a rich man. That is, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You need to pay attention right here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why is it the will of the Lord to crush him? To rescue a sheep. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here's where it just gets even more beautiful to me. Way back in Genesis, God calls Abraham to take his only son and to sacrifice him to God. And Abraham does what none of us would do and he packs up soon the next morning. Most of us would probably either try to avoid it altogether or we'll try to push it back as long as possible. If you're a parent, you get that. But Abraham packs up first thing the next morning and he gets Isaac to gather some things. And they take two servants and they begin to go. And, and, and God says, you know, I'll tell you when you get to where you need to go. And, and they go and they get to this point. They get to the base of the mountain and Abraham tells his two servants, you hang back here, me and Isaac are going to go. Up the mountain. And, and the, man, just 
I'm a visual person, so I need you to try to paint this picture in your mind. You have the father carrying the tools of death in his hands. And you have the son carrying the wood for sacrifice on his back. And they're making their way up the mountain. And they get up to the mountain, to the top of the mountain, where they're going to have the sacrifice. And they begin to prepare it. And Isaac begins to ask his dad, but wait a minute, we, we got everything, but we kind of forgot the sacrifice. We, we pretty much forgot the most important part of this. And Abraham says what? No, son, the Lord will provide. And, and I think often we, we picture Isaac as this like little run of a boy. But he was actually a, a young man at this point. Abraham was old. Now, if you were in Isaac's place and there was an old man saying, we're about to sacrifice you and you're a young, strapping, you know, powerful man, what are you doing? You're probably going to push back a little. But Isaac doesn't. He carries the wood on his back. He goes up the mountain and he prepares it, trusting his father. He prepares the altar and then he willingly lays himself down. And at the moment that the father is about to sacrifice his son, completely trusting in God. He has no idea how God is going to make it happen, but he trusts God. Abraham hears a voice from heaven and he tells him to stop. And they hear a ram and God had provided a sacrifice. And here we see the father holding the keys of life and death in his hand. Jesus carrying the sacrificial wood on his back. And he goes up the mountain to where he willingly puts himself on a cross. And this time God does provide the sacrifice in his son. And he crushes his son to save his people from their sins. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That means he put all of the sin. That's why in, in, in parts of the gospel, when you begin to read the, the crucifixion account and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because God had turned his back. Jesus, God, I mean, Jesus, God had turned his back on his son because he could not look at sin. And 1 Corinthians 5 says that, 2 Corinthians 5, says that Jesus took our sin on him. And at that moment, God turned his back and destroyed his son. That is the wrath that was meant for you and me for our sin because of the horrible nature that we have sinned against God. Jesus stepped in our place. See, a good shepherd will go to extreme measures to care for his flock. And the good shepherd went to death to care for the souls of his. Why? How could he do such a thing? How could he love so strongly? Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Did you catch that? He knows the love of the Father. He trusted the plans of God. He trusted the leading of God. And he gave his life. 
He gave his life so that there could be one flock. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. One flock of many different sheep from many different families, from many different backgrounds. And the flock of God is many sheep, many different places, many different stories, many different lives, many different issues, many different victories, many different failings. One flock. So Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. He came to give life to his sheep, to his people. There is no elect, select group of people based on family, based on socioeconomic class, based on gender, based on race, based on anything. The select group of Christ's sheep are simply selected on grace. That's why we can gather with so many different backgrounds, so many different socioeconomic classes, so many different races, so many different genders, and all serve one shepherd and be of one flock because of the grace of our King and the glories of our King. One shepherd. That's the good news of the beautiful shepherd. And for us, as the sheep of his fold, we are called to take the good news of the beautiful shepherd to the ends of the earth. To declare his glory among the nations. To tell the world that he is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. See, the beauty of the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, is that he lays his life down for his sheep. And now he's calling you to trust him with your life. The sheep trust the shepherd and they follow. Are you trusting? And there's no more sacrifices to be given. There's no more ritual to take part in. There's no more work to be done. As the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Do you trust him? See, not only does Jesus die for his sheep, but Jesus also lives for his sheep. It is Easter, right? We're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to be peppy. Do you know in the Middle Eastern shepherding, if the shepherd dies, the sheep are normally killed? Kind of makes sense, right? If, if their whole life is accustomed and attuned to following one shepherd that they trust, they're not going to follow another. And so typically when the shepherd dies, the sheep are killed. They're not going to follow another shepherd. But that's not the case with the beautiful shepherd. The sheep live. They live because he lives. We live because he lives. His death was not permanent. Why? Because he holds the keys to life and death. Death could not defeat him. The grave could not hold him. 
Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. How often do we put the death of Christ on Judas and the Roman soldiers and Pilate and the misguided Jews? But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus is saying, I gave my life. Could he have called 10,000 legions of angels? Absolutely. But was that the Father's plan? No. Because if he would have done that, then the righteous requirement of the law would not have been fulfilled. See, somebody had to die, right? If Jesus would have escaped in that manner like they were mocking him to do, we would have no hope. But he gave his life and he takes it up again. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, the willing sacrifice of the beautiful shepherd is made all the more beautiful in the fact that he rose in victory to live. So why is Good Friday good? Because of Sunday. And sometimes I just want on Easter, everybody's probably heard it, I even shared a clip of it, but if you've never had a chance to listen to the whole sermon of S.M. Lockridge, Sunday's, uh, you know, Friday, but Sunday's coming, you should do that. It is outrageous. Um, and even more outrageous is that God would give his son for us. I mean, what's more powerful? That we killed Jesus or that God killed him for us? That God would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. He has the keys. He has authority over life and death. Which means that there is nothing that you and I can face. That will catch him off guard. Or make him weak. There is no struggle, no trial, nothing. Because... He lives, I can face tomorrow. All the pain, all the trials, all the tribulations, all the struggles, all the shame that you may be facing has been washed away at the cross. If you trust Him. See, again, as a sheep follow their shepherd, because they trust you can follow the beautiful shepherd because he loves you. And he loves you a way that you don't know love. He loves you a way that you can only even begin to try to understand. I think when we die and we stand before God, for those who have trusted in Christ, we will spend eternity trying to grasp the love of God. That's why Paul breaks out into his little doxological praise in Romans 11. Oh, how deep. Paul doesn't do that. And he's laying out the beautiful plan of God's 
sovereign salvation of his people, that we were dead in sin and we're made alive to God. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's good. And he loves you. And he loves me. And he loves us enough to give it all. Will you trust him? See, he has authority over life and death because he was raised from life to death. From death to life. He is the maker of all things. He is the king of all things. And as powerful and as mighty and as majestic and as glorious as he is. He loves us enough to give his life for us. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. There's, there's not an asterisk here, right? He's not saying, I lay my life down for my sheep if they come on Easter and they act like they have everything together. He's not saying, I lay my life down for my sheep as long as they you know, start attending church and maybe give a little bit. He's not saying, I lay my life down for my sheep if I go on a mission trip occasionally. He's not saying, I lay my life down for my sheep if they volunteer. He's not saying, I lay my life down for my sheep if they live a good life and people respect them. That's not what he's saying. See, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that he lays his life down for his sheep and he knows us. That means he knows our deepest and darkest secrets. I told you before, he knew you before you were born. He knew you before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before he created all things. He knew you. And he had set his face to Jerusalem, to the cross. Right? For God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. So what does that mean? That means it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what kind of money you got or what kind of job you got or what kind of family you got. None of that matters. What matters is our relationship with Christ. What matters is if we have trusted the good shepherd. What matters is if we have given everything, if we have surrendered everything into the hands of the beautiful shepherd. And I don't know, maybe we're a lot of folks that look like we have it all together. I don't know. But I do know that he does say that there are going to be many who stand before me that thought they had it all together. My paraphrase. There are going to be a lot of people who thought that they had the keys to the kingdom. The question is, is do we believe? Do we believe that Jesus is the good shepherd? Do we believe that he gave his life for his sheep? Do we believe that we are his sheep? Do we believe that he knows the love of the Father? Do we believe that he knows you by name? Do we believe 
that he has the authority to take his life up again. Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will what? You will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. He has authority over life and death. The keys are in his hands. So do you believe? And do you trust him? If not, today is the day. Let's pray. Father, how glorious it is to know that we don't serve a weak God. We don't serve a God that fails. That we don't serve a God that retreats. No. We serve the King good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd who gave his life so that we may live. And Father, for those here today who have never truly trusted in you, I pray, God, that you will begin to move in their hearts, that they will see their need, their desperate need for you, and that they will cry out to you to save. For the rest of us, God, who may be trusting in you, who may be your children, but who just may be struggling, that you will encourage us with the truth that you never leave and you never forsake. It doesn't matter what kind of junk we do or what kind of sins we fall into, God, if we trust in you, you will never leave us. Never leave us. Because your love goes beyond all of those things. So make much of yourself in this time, God, and we ask that salvation would come to those who are calling out. It's in Christ's name we pray.